This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Community Show, and Salut Babette. My name is Vivian Langford, and with me in the studio is Andy Britt. How are you, Andy? Good. How are you, Viv? I'm good, thank you. And Colin Long. Dr. Colin Long is from the Victorian Trades Hall Council. Hi, Colin. Hi, Vivian. Now, um, tonight's program is episode two in our series on the September 20th climate strike. We're trying to build up knowledge about it and reason to go to it. And, you know, it's a serious thing to go out on strike, and we're building up momentum for it. Last week, we talked to students and teachers, and tonight we're talking to trade unionists from the MUA, the NTEU, the NUW, and the Nurses and Midwives Association. But first, I'd like to do something different. I'd like to apologise for all the times I have not acknowledged the traditional owners of the land on which we speak and on which we broadcast. I'm really sorry. And Andy's going to do the welcome to country that we should have done all these times before. Beyond Zero Emissions is proud to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. They are the traditional owners of the land we are broadcasting from and would like to pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Thanks Andy. So our guests tonight will be Dr Colin Long, Dr Janet Roden, Erema Dahl, Chris Breen and Tim Kennedy. To get us started, here's Naomi Klein talking to unions in Paris at the 2015 Climate Conference. So in the LEAP Manifesto, we have these key demands. We need to invest in our decaying public infrastructure so that it can withstand increasingly frequent extreme weather events. That's pretty obvious. And we also call for all of those obvious investments in energy efficiency, you know, in, in renewable-based uh, renewable transit and rail and so on that we know create up to 10 times more jobs than investments in oil and gas. But we do something else, and I, this is actually, I think, the most important important part of the manifesto, which is that we call for more than green jobs in disaster response and putting up solar panels. We're also calling for a wave of investments in the low-carbon workforce that is already out there. Okay? What we're trying to do is redefine what is a climate job. It is not just guys in hard hats putting up solar panels. Um, it's that too, but we have to expand those sectors that are already low carbon, caregiving, teaching, social work, healthcare, the arts, public interest media. You know, environmentalists don't usually mention it, but teaching and caring for kids doesn't burn much carbon, neither does caring for the sick. Um, so when we care for each other, we are also caring for the earth. And it's important. We can expand these parts of our economy. They can be the, the fastest growing parts of your, our economy, but at the same time, we do need to contract extraction. We can't do it all. We need to contract those parts of our economy that are based on extraction and mindless consumption, and we need to expand those parts of our economy that are based on caring for the earth and caring for one another. So we've got Dr. Colin Long in the uh, studio with us tonight, and he's the Just Transitions Officer at the Victorian Trades Hall. So I'd like to ask you, Colin, what's your answer to Naomi Klein's question, what's a climate job? 
Well, it's a number of very diverse things, as as Naomi said. I, but I don't think it's actually as simple as Naomi paints it, actually. Uh, it is true that we need to think of uh, climate jobs as much more broad than just working in renewable energy. And in fact, there aren't that many jobs in renewable energy. It's one of the attractions of renewable energy, of course, that once you've built your solar farm or your wind farm, there's not an awful lot of maintenance to be done on those facilities. It's one of the reasons why the price of power from those facilities is very cheap. So it's got to be more than that. Uh, It's got to be the caring jobs and all of those sorts of jobs are clearly uh, part of the future. But the reality is those sorts of jobs are expanding quite a rapid rate now. The jobs that are declining at a rapid rate, irrespective of climate action, but it's things like technological uh, redundancy and other problems uh, and internationalisation, offshoring, all of those sorts of things are blue-collar jobs. Uh, Blue-collar jobs are declining at a rapid rate. They will decline even faster if we deal with climate change, especially if we're talking about our fossil fuel sector. So we do have to think about what sort of blue-collar jobs can be created because there's a real need for blue-collar jobs in the economy. And so that means we have to be thinking also about uh, expanding manufacturing of clean energy goods and um, factories and uh, you know solar panels or, or wind turbines or or other aspects of renewable energy but uh, I think we also need to be thinking about um, local economy um, diversification especially in regional centers to provide a full range of jobs the reality is we are not going to get uh, former coal miners to be working in teaching or uh, aged care or caring. That's not going to happen, largely. So, so we need to think about jobs for those people yeah, as well. Yeah, so this is the thinking I want you to tell us because I know you're quite an expert on this. And the ALP and the Greens both took to the last election a, the idea of a transition authority. Hmm. Um, other countries do have that. The Germans are famous for their energy transition where they didn't leave anyone behind. They retrained and, and put, made redundancies and pooled people so that younger guys could go and work where the older people were retiring a bit earlier. I gather that's how it was working. It was all thought out and was all done with civil society being part of the meeting, you know, part of the discussion. That's what I've heard about from many speakers. So um, I... Do you think it's got to be done by government, doesn't it? Well, what we what we need that the Germans were able to achieve was bringing together employers, unions and government to make long-term plans and put large amounts of government investment into the transition. So Germany has largely closed its black coal industry. It's now working out how to coal, uh, close its brown coal industry and it's intending to close all brown coal power generation by 2038 and is committed to 40 billion euros in economic diversification uh, in the regions where those brown coal generators exist. That's the scale of money that needs to be put in and it probably does need to be public investment. Uh, To me, it's clear what needs to be done. What we're tending to do in Australia at the moment is spend an awful lot of time and energy, and that's human energy and literal electricity energy, (laughs) uh, wasting our time 
devising complex market mechanisms and making sure that the national electricity market has all sorts of incentives and signals to try and uh, tempt private in capital to invest in renewable energy when it's quite simple what we should be doing. We should have a, a, a transition. We should have a clear plan for the closure of coal-fired power stations up to, I say, probably 2035. We should know when each one is going to close and the last one will close in 2035. We should then have a clear idea of what renewables should replace those power stations as they close, where it will occur and what will happen to the workers and the communities uh, w- that are displaced by the closure of the coal-fired power station, making sure that they all have good, renew- uh, good uh, secure jobs, whether it's in renewables or some other form of economic activity in, in their region. <coughs> and that, that's actually a reasonably clear task. It doesn't need a whole lot of s- complex market mechanisms to do that. After all, uh, it was the state government that uh, in Victoria invested in the, the development of the coal-fired power stations in the first place. They didn't have to invent a complex market mechanism to get people, private companies, to invest in them. It just decided we needed large-scale uh, generation capacity for the state's future and yeah, yeah. built it. That's right. That, they were, it was all built with public money and then it was privatised. That's right. <laughs> well, what about the workers in the coal and gas regions? We had uh, Tony Marr on the 2nd of August in the Financial Review saying it's counterproductive to tell workers in an export industry that's currently growing and profitable, according to him, that they should just accept uh, their six-figure jobs are over today. Those are fighting words. <laughs> well, no, I don't think anyone is actually saying that the jobs are over today or tomorrow. I think what is needed is a commitment from all sides, from the employers, from unions, from governments, to say there will, these industries, fossil fuel industries, don't have a long-term future in a world where we are seriously dealing with climate change. So we must identify a time and a date when we will be essentially closed, these industries will be closed. There will be a transition period. There'll be, uh, and we will ensure that the workers um, have other jobs and other economic t- activities to go to. No, no worker and no community will be left behind in that process. But it does mean we have to acknowledge there will be a transition. At the moment... Tony's words suggest that there's no acceptance that there needs to be a transition. I don't think that's what Tony meant. Uh, I think he probably accepts that there... And, I, I, you know, I think the CFMU understands very well in coal-fired power generation that uh, there needs to be a transition and I think they would like to have a much better process of planning around that transition than it exists at the moment. Well, um, you know, at the moment the CFMEU gets a lot of flack for other things and there in the financial review it looks like they're the darling of the ongoing <laughs> Adani mine and all the rest of it. Um, and the election, a lot of people took that lesson from the last election that, oh, it was the coal mining you know, areas that, you know, with the, you know, the fly in the ointment as far as going ahead with these uh, things that Melbourne and Sydney city people probably just see as an obvious transition? Look, I think the problem is that a lot of people talked about uh, the climate uh, election, a lot of people talked about just transition, but there was no real meat to the bones of what people were talking about. What does it, I don't think there was any worker in a coal mine in Queensland that could have, you, 
I don't think anyone had any sense if they were told, okay, we're gonna, your mine is going to close and you'll have to do something else. I don't think any worker there had a sense of what else that was going to be. I don't think anyone was proposing um, terrific plans about what jobs people were going to go to, what their wages would be, how secure their jobs would be, um, and what uh, their community was going to be like. So when you create a huge amount of fear and uncertainty uh, amongst people, uh, for people, I think it's the same for anyone, um, you won't necessarily get people uh, voting the way you want them to, to vote. I think you, you create uh, you know, anger from that fear and a lot of that is reflected in the vote for the parties like uh, One Nation in, in Queensland where I don't, you know, I've heard stories of people say, well, I voted One Nation. I don't particularly like any of their policies, but, I, mm. she, but Pauline Hanson, I voted for her because she sticks it up on and that's what I feel like at the moment because no one has got my interests at heart. Mm. Uh, there's a lot of people involved in the um, fossil fuel industry that would love to have uh, good, secure jobs doing something other than um, helping to create pollution in the world. But we, we're not being able to convince them that those jobs and those economic activities are out there for them uh, to to move to. Yeah, well, we've got to speed up this, you know, new narrative, I think, as they say, a narrative. Um, look, the strike for climate justice goes well beyond the usual bread and butter um, issues that unions, you know, strike for. How are unionists responding to the students' invitation to strike with them or stand up with them on September the 20th? Sorry, just before I come to that, can I just say yeah. quickly, finishing off on the other point, that the, so the, the Maritime Union is doing terrific work on proposing a framework around offshore uh, wind yeah, in, rela- in response to the uh, Star of the South proposal in oh, Gippsland. Yeah. So the unions are engaged in thinking about these ideas about how we can move from uh, mining and uh, fossil fuels to renewables. And it is possible. We've just got to demonstrate that it's possible and give, and give people hope and, and actually show them that it's possible. And that's the sort of thing we're trying to do with the Star of the South pro, um, proposal in the, in the Trade Valley. But to get to the September 20th, so our Trades Hall Executive, the, all of the union affiliates to Trades Hall, unanimously passed a motion on Friday, last Friday, in support of the climate strike on the 20th of September. And, and the important thing about that, that date and that event is it's not a student strike. It's not just us supporting the students. This is a call for a strike for all people workers and students, because it's all our future and we can't just leave it up to the students, although the, the work they're doing is fantastic, but it's everyone needs to be working together. So the unions have committed to taking, um, to organising to participate in the climate strike. We'll be having uh, tomorrow night for any young work, young union, unionists out there, Trades Hall, we're having a the launch of our Young Unionist Climate Activist Network meeting at the hall from 5.30. Um, uh, that's, and we'll be talking about organising for September 20 and we'll be having an all-unions meeting uh, in, the early, in the early days of September again about organising for September 20. So I was really pleased that unions have got on board to support the strike um, other unions, some unions have also passed, indiv- individual unions have passed motions 
uh, to engage as well. Yeah, well, that's very heartening, and that's why I've yeah. asked you. You're the expert, and I, you know a lot of people pay tribute to you and your long work in this over all the years I've known you. You know that we've this climate movement's been going. You've been in there. Look, I just wanted to finish on a question. Sally McManus wrote a little tiny book called Fairness. There's mm. these little books people can find in the bookshop, and hers is on fairness, and she shows just how dangerous it is to go on strike these days. And things have deteriorated, really, and also for activists, you know, the huge fines for people mm. up in the Galilee Basin where people are locking onto machinery, $9,000 fine this poor guy got. I mean, a lot of money. And for unions, it's dangerous. I would welcome a new era of union muscle where, you know, all these transitions are made possible and people can see they way, they way through, and that includes loggers, you know, forestry workers, you know, being able to not cut down native forests and they can get jobs in forestry management if they you know but it'll have to be done i think as usual with a fight so um you know uh, what is your vision for for this sort of um you know getting what we want leveraging what we want without in getting everyone in jail and without you know the the bloodiness of striking in the past you know it can go on like what's happening in hong kong now people are you know it just goes into such a sort of us and them thing do you think that this climate change as we're all involved could be different uh that's a a difficult question look i say to people at um a conference or wherever i go that actually one of the major Uh, climate change and just transition issues that most people aren't aware of is actually industrial relations law in this country. So Australia has the most repressive anti-union laws in the OECD today. And that actually prevents unions uh, organising workers to do the sorts of things um, what unions should be doing, just fighting for decent paying conditions. It means that we now have... Uh, one of the most insecurely employed workforces in the world. It means we have flatlining wages. And without the ability to improve those terms and conditions of employment, workers just feel insecure. And insecure workers are not going to trust anyone around uh, industry restructuring or where they're going to get their a new job from. And the history of Australia is that our industry restructuring uh, is appalling usually workers get it in the neck. Yep. And that's the reality. And until unions are able to uh, get some power back, and that means seriously changing the industrial relations laws in this country and stopping the attacks on unions, then we're not going to be able to fundamentally shift the discourse around just transition. So that, But that's only going to be achievable with a significant fight, to be honest. Yep. And I suspect the way we're heading, the way that, the coalition government is heading. Uh, I think they'll be trying to crack down further on unions and it may indeed come to unionists having to go to jail again to uh, to once again, you know, really get people on the streets de- de- determined to uh, fight back. I think what's going on with uh, Extinction Rebellion is is very positive. I think getting out there and really... Um, getting people to realise the extent of the danger we all face, that's very important. Uh, and unions, you know, we, we need to be able to get out there and mobilise people. And it, it is, it's 
deeply anti-democratic that if workers today uh, on the 20th of September walk off the job to join the the climate strike, they could be prosecuted and there's every chance they would be if they're in the construction industry. Right. Okay. Thank you, Colin. It's very serious business and thank you for setting us with the right tone for the rest of this show. Thank you, Andy. We've got another person on the line, which is Dr Janet Roden. She's from the Nurses and Midwives Association. Thanks, Andy. Hi, I'm Kim Salmon. I'd like to have a quick word about uh, public radio, particularly 3CR. The thing about public radio is that it's more open than the more formatted types of radio to what's going on around it. So when you listen to it, you're more likely to hear a reflection of real life. And 3CR being in the heart of Smith Street, Collingwood, is a particularly good example of what I'm talking about. If you'd like to uh, subscribe... The number is 94198377. You've been listening to the same. You could never understand. Feel the fortune flowing. You know it isn't stuck. Welcome, Janet. I'm sorry we kept you waiting. How are you? Look, I'm well, Vivian. Thank you. Is that Vivian? Yes. Thank you for coming on the show. Janet um, is a uh, Dr. Janet Roden. She's from the Nurses and Midwives Association, and I met her at one of the organising meetings for this September 20th uh, strike that we're building up momentum for. And Janet, I later then did some research on what you've been writing and doing, and um, I'd, I'd like you to talk about the healthy impacts of climate change. But first, let's start off with your with the nurses and midwives. And you must have seen the birth of many babies. So tell us how living near a gas well or a coal mine or a coal power station can affect babies born nearby. Hello, yes. Um, I'm Dr Janet Roden. Um, I'm um, a professional officer at New South Wales Nurses and Midwives and I work in the environmental health portfolio. I'd just like to um, say that if you live near a coal-fired power station, even within a 200k radius uh, in New South Wales, you can or you you will know, or you should know, uh, that babies can be born, low birth weight babies, and the number of those babies is just amazing. It's 233 babies born underweight every year in New South Wales. And this is something that is not really acceptable, but it's, it's a, um, a gentleman called Dr Ben Ewells who discovered this as a result of coal-fired uh, power station pollution and um, it's defined particulate air pollution that contributes not only to babies born underweight, these babies, but 279 premature deaths and also 269 people having diabetes too. And this, uh, Ben, has predicted um, and has researched, has said that this will happen every year in New South Wales. Well, look, I know the nurses... And Midwives Association New South Wales has a proud commitment to action on climate change. And I'd like to know, how do you educate your members to take action, especially now that it's all become very political? And I know a lot of nurses maybe wouldn't be very comfortable going out on a demonstration or on a strike. You know, 
but how do you educate them about the importance and the urgency of it? They're frontline workers after all. Yes, it is a tough question, that one. Um, that's the sort of question that um, we'll, we'll put in. We are sending out um, emails to members and um, one of the things will be how you can work work around the whole situation um, depending on where you are within the state of New South Wales. Um, you can take a lunch break. Now, you're entitled to a lunch break and you can take part in the strike because it is being held, the global climate strike is being held over lunch. <laughs> but of course, some people, you know, will do other things. They might do something in their workplace that's significant, some actions that are, you know, they feel, um, I guess, complement the strike. But there are ways around it, Vivi, and that's one of the ways that will be suggested to some of our uh, people who are, um, you know, working on the front line, so to put it. But the other thing is that on Friday, I was involved in a, um, a forum, a midwifery forum with midwives, and I spoke about environmental health and I spoke about the, uh, the problems um, with the, uh, the babies, the 233 underweight babies, 2.5 kg babies, and, and the results that have been found because of coal-fired power stations. And the midwives, quite a few of them, were quite horrified. And they rushed to my table to get that information because I, I told them I had information on that table. So the messages do seem to be getting through. Um, of course, they want to know what they can do about those sorts of things. And, and we tell them, yes, you can do submissions. And uh, we've very got a good relationship with Environmental, um, Environmental Justice Australia who have given us templates and uh, this will help our members to write submissions. And obviously, we have written a submission too. The association has written a submission, a recent submission on the National Environment Protection Measures Review of Standards for NO2, nitrous oxide, SO2, sulphur dioxide and ozone, O3. These are very, very, um, I suppose, toxic gases and that, uh, that people just really don't understand and um, and yet, you know, as I've said to you, within a 200k radius, we know that these gases from the coal-fired power stations up in the central coast and from Lisco are now circulating their pollution around and well, that could be causing very toxic, bad results, as I've already indicated. Yeah, I'm, uh, it's, it's discouraging to think that people are sort of ignorant about the local impacts because you'd think if you were living in an area you would be aware if there was something noxious in the environment, especially if you're having a baby. But I'm worried about the climate impact of coal and gas and coal-fired power stations because that mm. climate change, always people go, oh, it's all a bit too political for me and don't want to go there. And mm. I'm wondering, you did a report called Breathing the Black Stuff and you found people were in conflict about that because you know, the Liddell power station is about to close down or is going to, and um, they, they want the jobs there and they're, and they're over a, you know, mm. it's a, it, it conflicts people and, and causes anxiety. Um, what's the way forward in, in educating the public that there is another way, there are alternatives, you know, that they, they've got to work on them. We've just heard from Colin Long, you know, people have got to start making it happen. Yes, well, I did do a, um, a report, Muscle Brook, colon between eight 
coal mines and two power stations. Hmm. Anyone can Google that. It's a PDF. And that report, uh, I think, is very enlightening. Well, it's interesting because, yes, there are people who don't want to say too much because of their job, but there are also other people who do tell, tell it as it is. And um, we had, I think, an interesting mix of people. We had uh, almost 100 people who did our surveys and uh, a, a significant number of those were from the Liddell Power Station. They were power workers. So uh, we just didn't have the local community. We had the power workers as well. So I think that's interesting because we got we did get some quite interesting information and we got um, we actually found out that the power workers really would like to retrain and they'd like to get into um, the, um, I guess, engineering and uh, renewable technologies and there are courses in that, Vivian, in um, um, uh, TAFE and universities. So... Um, we, we did find some very interesting material. But um, getting back to how we, how we go about, I think the trouble is that um, politically, as you say, it's problematic. But I have written a journal article that I've sent to um, a, a journal in the US and it just indicates that um, there were many people who I think were unsure of what was going on in their own backyard. Perhaps they didn't want to stay, but I had um, people saying to me, oh, oh, yes, the power plant. Oh, yes, I do live close. But what's coming out of that is just steam. So they had no idea about the deadly nature of mm. the coal-fired power stations. Yeah. It appeared well, to me. But, I mean, I think the other thing, Vivian, is that I also wrote that people really don't understand the uh, renewable technology. They have no idea. Um, some people, there was a very small number who were, I suppose, clued up and aware in the survey about, uh, about renewable technology. But I would say that um, educating people in the upper Hunter Valley in renewable technology would be a very important thing to do. Yeah, well, look, I'd like to thank you for the work you're doing on both nurses' education and I know you've been looking at international nurses putting together toolkits and so on, and also community education because I think mm. people trust medical professionals. They trust the voice. You know, it's a, mm. it's very trustworthy. But I've just got one last question. We have got two mm. other guests, but um, I'd like to know how big will the Nurses and Midwives Association from New South Wales, how big will the response be to the children calling us to go on strike on September the 20th? I mean, it's not just the children I as I know it's it's a global event but they're the ones who've initiated this and going on strike a serious thing for adults and um, we don't yeah. want the hospitals to close down but apart from going on lunchtime um, uh, demonstrations what what else can nurses do um, how big will it be do you think in the, that sector oh I think it'll be quite big um, I'm hoping Vivian because um, as you know we're working with other unions are supporting the students. I mean, school students are very concerned for their future and the future of the world. They don't see any action from politicians in Australia and, of course, they want unions to support them. And that's what we will do. There are many unions, the MUA, the PSA, ASU, ANWU, Unions New South Wales, the NTEU and New South Wales NMA, us. And we will work in solidarity with these unions and with the students. We hope 
we will have a very large contingent of people. As I say, we're, prepare, we're preparing, we're sending out... Um, um, all members are getting uh, letters with suggestions about what they can do. And I think I can't tell you all these suggestions because I haven't got them in front of me. That's all right. But I, I do know one of them is to just go at lunchtime, do actions perhaps on site, perhaps um, even, um, you know, you can send messages to your politicians. I think lobbying politicians is very powerful. And in this case, it's really got to be the Fed, doesn't it? Yeah. Federal people. We have to get to them. We have to tell them we're not happy with them. Thank and you very much, Janet. I hope some of these people who are climate deniers are one day in your hospital or in a hospital <laughs> and, and the nurse who's very motivated will just put them right. Um, thank you for your, your contribution today and um, good luck with your efforts in the strike. Oh, thank you, Vivian. Thank you. thank you, everyone. Thank you. So that was Dr Janet Roden from the New South Wales Nurses and Midwives Association. And now we're going again to Sydney, but this time to speak to an MUA member. It's uh, Erima Dahl. Are you there, Erima? Yeah, hi, Vivian. How are you going? Well, I'm going well, thanks. Um, you're a member of the Maritime Union of Australia and... I think you got your climate um, muscles going in the AYCC. So can you tell us, um, we're in Melbourne here broadcasting, but uh, what do you do up in Sydney? Uh, I work, as you said, I'm in the maritime industry. I'm a wharfie. I work at Port Botany unloading container vessels. Well, is that a, how, how do you um, train for that? Uh Train on the job for that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I got um, I got a job there uh, with the help of the MUA, the the union that covers Warfies. I had um, some relationship with them through my political history. Um, I'd supported a lot of um, MUA, you know, actions and strikes to save jobs at the docks, and um, also had had a lot of MUA members come to. The university where I was studying and support us in our campaigns for better education against cuts to staff and shutting down the art school and things like that. So, um, yeah, some jobs came up down at the docks and they helped me put my name forward to get an interview and then, yeah, went from there. Well, I'm really impressed. I look at people in those cranes on various building sites and I think, honestly, those people are very courageous because it looks extremely dangerous doing that but I dare say it's, you're all very well protected and well trained on the job are you? Uh, it is a very dangerous industry as you say I think that's partly why the union is so important and why they do retain such high membership levels because actually we have to deal with safety disputes quite quite often and exercise our power on the job to do that it's a really important part of working in um in an industry with such you know heavy machinery like like that. So, yeah, I've learned a lot about the union working there. Yeah. Well, why is your union uh, keen to support the students striking on September the 20th? Yeah, I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One, I think, is the history of the MUA itself. It has a very radical history. It's very often been at the forefront of social struggles and taken an approach that sees unions as being not just to fight for wages and conditions, but to actually fight for working class interests in a broad sense. And climate change is going to affect working people 
you know, all across the world. It's going to be the poorest, the most vulnerable, the most exploited people who are going to be, you know, at the front lines of natural disasters, at the front lines of rising sea levels, you know, heat waves, water shortages, all that sort of stuff. So I think that's one reason is that it is a working class issue and the MUA sees it in that way and wants to take it up as a social justice fight. I think um, the other reason is that there's a lot of quite immediate opportunities for maritime workers to get good quality jobs in new expanding renewable um, in the renewable industry. And particularly I'm thinking of um, uh, unemployed seafarers. There's been a bit of a crisis in the seafaring industry in Australia. And at the moment, the MUA is campaigning to get new offshore wind projects that can help provide new good jobs for for seafarers, either unemployed seafarers or seafarers currently working in, um, you know, in the fossil fuel industry. Right. Um, Colin Long was here before and he spoke about Star of the South down in Gippsland. I think that's offshore wind rigs. Is that is that the sort of transition you're thinking of? Yeah, exactly. That's, that's the big one that we're currently campaigning for. Um, it could you know, provide thousands of construction jobs, hundreds of ongoing maintenance um, jobs. And, you know, it would be a really, really important project, I think, in leading the way for what a transition could look like. But I think it's important for people to know that it doesn't yet have construction approval, um, that it would be run privately and that there's no framework currently in place in Australia to expand outward from that single project. So that's what really we need to fight for. We need to fight to get this project, make sure there's really good unionised, uh, good quality jobs on that on that project, but also that we want a massive expansion of those kinds of projects. Right. Well, listen, the Green Bands in Sydney uh, was a, a like a legendary moment. It didn't really last long that time, but um, the builders' labourers refused to demolish heritage buildings in the end and even some bushland. And I wonder what inspire, inspiration do you get from the Green Bands? Yeah, I remember talking to you about this, Vivian. Yeah, that was one of my major inspirations. Like, as we talked about in person, I my very first political experiences was as um, a climate change activist when I was a student on campus and it was on on the university that I learned about the green bands about the idea of of workers power and that actually you know we're up against these huge fossil fuel companies but they still rely on ordinary people to do the job to make you know the economy keep running and the profits ticking over and and what I learned about reading about the green bands was that, you know, when workers feel empowered, when they're taking social justice issues head on, that we can actually exert some control over what we do with our labour. And the BLs, they refuse to demolish low-income housing, they refuse to demolish bushlands and huge areas of Sydney, iconic areas of Sydney, were saved by their decisions, places like the Rock, places like the Botanical Garden, Centennial Park, all these iconic areas of Sydney would have been demolished to build uh, highways or, you know, office blocks, things like that. But they actually took a stand, a very brave and a very radical stand, and simply refused to carry out those tasks 
in the name of the social good and said, actually, why shouldn't our labour be used to do something constructive and good for the community? And I think that that's the, that's the lesson that we need at the moment. Actually, working people can be at the forefront of saying, we want to put our labour, our work towards a future for our kids, a future for ourselves, a sustainable planet, good, good communities, these sorts of things, uh, you know, time's up for the politicians. We have to take back the power in our own hands. Yeah, well, this theme is coming through tonight. Uh, Janet Roden's just said that about the Hunter Valley um, coal-fired power workers. They'd much prefer to be doing jobs that they could be proud of, not something that's creating pollution. And this awareness is there, though it's always this thing of you, you've got to have a job and you do whatever is offered. But I wonder... Do you think a large number of unionists will come out on strike? And if it's big, uh, this one on 20th of September, what effect do you want it to have? I think there will be a lot more unionists at this rally, at this student strike than the last one. The students have actively appealed to adults to join them. They've been meeting with union leaders. We've set up a group in Sydney, uh, uh, workers for September 20, to organise that and we've had, you know, there's quite a number of unions now that have passed motions that are organising contingents. But what I would say is I don't think there's going to be a widespread strike and that's disappointing, but we have to understand that we face really draconian anti-strike laws in this country and the union movement campaigns to beat back those strike laws and take back our right to strike has to go hand in hand with this fight for the climate because we need to be able to use our industrial power to send the government a strong message, to send companies a strong message and, as we discussed before, to actually be able to take back that power into into our own hands. So I think this strike in September can't be the end you know it has to be the beginning of actually building a much more radical workers movement for climate action fantastic thank you erima you speak very clearly i think you've really got your ideas together there and what leadership you're showing so thank you you're from um, erina dahl is from erima dahl is from the maritime union of australia speaking to us from sydney so thanks erima thanks so much bye-bye Oh, now, I think we're going to speak to Chris Breen. We haven't had time for any music, but we'll do that a bit later. Uh, Chris Breen, um, he wrote an article called Class and the Carbon Tax, Lessons We Can Learn from the Last Climate Movement. And I've invited him in because we are talking about the September the 20th strike for climate action and we need to get the demands right. Hello, Chris. Hello, thanks for having me on. Well, we've had an impressive line of people before you. I hope you can equal that. Yeah, it's it's a a lot to live up to. Their eloquence, honestly, I'm so pleased that people have got such clear ideas and also we have to acknowledge how complex and serious it really is, as as three of them have said so far, to actually do strike action in this society we live in. Well, look, um, could you first tell us how eager union members and and other workers are to stand behind the students. In your experience, I know you are in the climate movement and you you would be meeting a lot of people. Um, That differs from union to union. Uh, I mean, I'm a teacher and in my uh, workplace, you know, people are very concerned about climate. Um, Teachers supported the students going out last time. 
we had a debate at um, uh, the AEU, the Teachers Union Council, about um, going out last time. That that didn't happen. The AEU is supporting the climate strike this time. And so we're just starting to um, organise that, which is very important. I mean, I heard uh, Aaron was speaking just before about the anti-strike laws, and they are a problem. So, I mean, from school to school, it will be... Um, it will be people negotiating with their principals to get um, forms of leave and sort of delegated things to come. Um, but in Melbourne, there are also other unions. The, uh, the, the academics union is likely to have a um, decent turnout. Um, the um, CFMEU uh, supported a motion uh, to you know, back the climate strike. I'm, I'm not sure yet what sort of um, contingents they will have. Um, so there are people keen to come out, and but I think it's a sort of a chicken and egg. Like once we start, if people were able to, you know, defy the anti-strike laws, I think you'd get more and more people who are interested. Yeah. Well, look, in your article, you um, said there was a vagueness around slogans like climate action now and a just transition. And you'll see all those banners or people, those are the sort of slogans we do see. But how can we refine these to win more workers over? You know, you had quite some thoughts about refining those actual demands. Um, I think I was quite heartened to see that the um, student school strikers have updated their demands. And so they've uh, their current demands are no new fossil fuels, 100% renewable energy by um, uh, 2030 and a, a just transition to uh, climate uh, jobs. Um, I think the one thing that is, perhaps very important that isn't there yet, is 100% publicly owned energy uh, by uh, 2030. Like, I think the publicly is very important. I think that the the market just isn't going to deliver us uh, the, the, the change we need in the time we need. Um, also, I think if you're trying to win workers over, people in the Latrobe Valley, um, you know, stores were devastated by privatisation. And there's, you know, plenty of workers. I used to be in AMW as well. That I, you know, so I, I know people who work work down at the coal mines who would have other jobs if they were there. But they say, well, where are these other jobs? Yeah. And if the movement could win for people, you know, new jobs in the renewable energies at, you know, guaranteed jobs that people could transfer to at the same rate of pay with union conditions, I think you would find uh, people going across. But to get that sort of transition, I, I do think it means that you know government has to lead it. It was government that built every single coal-fired power station in this country because of the scale of the investment required, and I think we need that again. Um, you know, it would also government could then be control power prices, all sorts of other things like that. Right. Well, uh, um, the scale of the transition is certainly what's um, frightening everybody, the scale and the speed that we've now left it so long. We've delayed for 20 years. Well, maybe we couldn't have done it differently, but we have been delaying, and now this scale of this is very huge. And um, I wonder if, you know, can you name some projects? I was thinking that Beyond Zero Emissions was very involved with Port Augusta, 
and the yes. Repower Port Augusta. Yes, and uh, I went down there last year, and I and, and Port Augusta is now a hub for all sorts of renewable stuff, and all around it, Wyala Green Steel, like that's really going to be built up. But the company, the um, you know private company that was going to build the solar power thing there, it has uh, faded out at the moment. They haven't had the finance. So I think that's a good spot, which you mentioned in your article, for government to step yeah. in. Um, Absolutely. Um, now, what can the climate uh, activists do to sort of? You see, people haven't been activating for that, but that should you, that no, should no, be no, part no, of our consciousness, the, shouldn't the, it? The climate movement has had a, a very narrow focus on Adani, without a, you know an, an equal focus on jobs. And I think you know the election showed that that was a a, a problematic um, strategy. And I think the the case to, uh, to um, campaign. Uh, for the solar tower at Port Augusta, is very is very good and is very um, important. It's also a concrete way. Uh, you, you know, you can start to talk about climate jobs and a just transition. So it isn't just slogans. So you've had the um, since the uh, the coal um, power station shut down, you've had ex coal workers down there who fought for the um, solar tower project. It um, it, it got. Uh, approval to go ahead and then collapsed in April this year because of lack of finance. Um, I think if you were to have a campaign by the climate movement to build that solar tower, it would be enormously popular. If it was one, it would be um, something where you could point to a real transition from coal jobs to new renewable jobs. But the reality is because of the lack of finance, it isn't going to be built unless the government steps in. Um, but we're not you know, accustomed to government stepping in anymore, except to no, be we're, we're not accustomed to it. But <laughs> interestingly, the, the Liberals are now talking about government building a, or, you know, uh, subsidising uh, the Liddell power station to stay open longer for taxpayers yeah, to do that. That's right. They're talking about building a new coal-fired power station with yeah. taxpayers' money. Um, because they, you know, the, the scale of the investment needs needed, but I think we have to demand that it's government that builds um, renewables. And we did see actually with the NBN, the scale of the investment required meant that government did run that, and then you know then starts to wants to to sell it off to private companies. Um, and if they can build a, a, a national broadband network as flawed as that is, they can step in to build the you know the, the renewable energy that we so desperately need. Well, we're rushing against the clock, Chris. I'm sorry I didn't get to you as early as I'd like to, but just a a few months ago, Tony Abbott lost his seat to a climate campaigner and he said, uh, this is a quote, where climate change is a moral issue, we Liberals do it tough, but where climate change is an economic issue, we do very, very well. Well, What lessons do you take from that? Um, I've... I quoted Tony Abbott on that just the other day. He's not somebody I would normally quote, but it is a useful insight. Um, the lessons I take from that is that we have to win not just on the urgent need to act, which there is, but we have to win on the economics as well. We have to link climate action to improving people's lives. Um, and so that means jobs. Some of the other things it means that I also covered in the article is not taking up any climate uh, demands which would cut living standards. So I think the climate movement made a mistake when it backed the carbon tax, which is going to raise electricity uh, prices. And I think that was something that, you know, uh, there was a vibrant climate movement sort of declined because it, it, it couldn't respond properly to that. 
it cut off support from you know from working people who who looked at that and thought I don't want my power prices to rise. So not using market mechanisms, but doing what it, you know we know what needs to be done to decarbonise the economy. It does mean jobs, but we have to demand those jobs of governments. You know that's what that's, that's why we elect governments. That's why we pay tax. Uh, we should expect that <clears throat> the government is able to step up and you know to deal with the climate crisis. Well, look, a lot of people don't want to talk about our uh, carbon exports, but I do, coal and gas, you know, and um, they're on the increase. You know, our our self-image is of exporting coal and gas, places like Newcastle are the biggest coal port in the world. So uh, one of the demands from these students is no no new coal, oil or gas, and the Stop Adani, the Flak people, the Wanganjagalingu, the Extinction Rebellion, they all want us to stop subsidising and exporting fossil fuels. But I wonder, from a union point of view, how can we get unions and workers who are, as you've said in your article, a lot of sort of city people are not terribly uh, sympathetic to or unaware of, really. How can we get unions and workers to bite the hand that feeds them, though? These are export industries that are... I'm rushing against the clock. Can you make a quick no, no, answer? No, I'm okay. sorry to have cut I mean, you off. In some ways, I, I do think the transition we need here in Australia is perhaps more important even than the exports. If we were able to transform our electricity industry, it starts to point a signal to other countries. Um, but in terms of unions, like you think about who has the power to shut these things down, you look at the green bands that you were talking about before, it's the people yeah. who work in those industries. Um, and the green bands took place in a time of economic boom. <coughs> Jobs are much more you know, um, precarious at the moment. And I think to think of people in coal mines being prepared to take action to demand a change, they would only do that if they thought they're not committing economic suicide, if they've got new jobs to move into and that they're, you know, they're guaranteed those jobs. That's why I think those, the demands on government are very important. And that probably means the movement beyond just the, you know, those, the people in the fossil fuel industry demanding that those workers have new jobs to go into. Um, otherwise, it's going to be very difficult to win their support. Right. Well, thank you very much for contributing, Chris. That was a really good article. And I think, you know, the climate movement does, it sort of needs a tonic, but it also needs a bit of cohesion too around some of these main ideas because you get so much flack for going down the wrong path, you know, like the... Um... We, we do need to get our ideas right. You know, yep. the last time around we had climate summits of 500 and that's all frittered away. And I think understanding the politics is going to be important to rebuilding the climate movement. Yeah, and people fight over things ever after. Like I went to candidates' forums before the last election and the the Greens kept getting all this flack for the CPRS, which was so long ago, and you know, and it was all hacked over and hacked over and the carbon tax. And you thought, oh, for and goodness sake. They were sake. right on the CPRS. It exactly. was worse than I, I was around then too, and I thought so. But, but the thing is, you know, you can keep going with the mythology if it gives you political... Uh, advantage or something, and I just feel we have to consolidate. Um, but thank you for your article because I think you push the argument and the discussion forward with your thing. We've only got three minutes to go, so I'll have to say goodbye, but thank you very okay. much. Thank, thank you. you for having me on. That's a pleasure. Thank you. Oh, I'm sorry, listeners, I'm getting rushed. I had one extra interview with Tim Kennedy, but I'll try and play that next week. Thank you to our guests tonight, which were Colin Long, who came into the studio, Dr. Janet Roden, 
um, Erima Dole from Sydney and Chris Breen from Melbourne. We had many unions represented there, and the MUA, uh, no, the National Union of Workers, uh, person I'll interview, um, put his interview on next week. So thank you to them, and thank you to Andy, and uh, I. I'd like to advertise the September the 20th strike. If you haven't caught that date yet, write it down now. 20th of September, a strike for climate action. One thing to advertise is with 350.org, they're having a training workshop on the 24th and the 25th. That's a Saturday week at 33 Saxon Street, Brunswick. You will meet Kate McKesney from the Sunrise Movement and Momentum. Remember, they were the people who were behind Jeremy Corbyn. Well, so she's into campaigning skills, and we certainly need them. Um, contact Jackson at 350.org.au, that's his email, or call him on 0422171345. You've been listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions community show on unions striking for climate action on September the 20th. Beyond Zero Emissions is an educational and research think tank that is very much behind Australia becoming a renewable energy superpower, as you'll hear next week with Tim Kennedy. And if you are interested in our reports on zero emissions industry or the 10 gigawatts vision, how renewable energy can power jobs and investment in the Northern Territory, it's just very new and very, very exciting to read, please go to the website bze.org.au. So thanks to Andy again. Thank you. No worries, Viv. It was action pack. (laughs) Action with you rushing in and out getting phone calls, that's for sure. Thanks to Andy. And, and, And my name is Vivian Langford. So good night and good luck. A person who inspired me much in my life has been Chico Mendes who found his work difficult as he was trying to protect the Amazon rainforest. He knew the Amazon rainforest was valuable, not only of its own right, because it was essential to tackling the warming of our planet. And he was very thoughtful towards the end of his life. He said this, At first, I thought I was fighting to save rubber trees. Then I thought I was fighting to save the Amazon rainforest. Now I realise I'm fighting for humanity itself. Mm -hmm.